Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. A lot to get to today. I'll start out talking with a lawyer about the legalization of recreational marijuana that comes with Tuesday's passage of State Issue 2. Kate Burdett has a segment about the new American Leadership Academy. In about 20 minutes, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS10TV, Doug Petcash has an extensive interview with Governor Mike DeWine on a range of issues. I'll talk with the communications and outreach officer from Disabled American Veterans, and I'll wrap up the hour talking with former Congressman Dick Gephardt about efforts to protect kids from harmful elements of social media. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me, Mike Griffiton, who is a labor and employment attorney in the Voorhees Columbus office. How are you? I'm well, Dave. Thank you for having me. Thanks for talking to us. So when we talk about labor and employment, and we see that Ohio has just passed recreational marijuana, that must be a big deal to folks like you. It could be. Um, I don't know if it will have as much impact on employers as people may think. So let's uh, talk a little bit about the fact that uh, unless the state legislature uh, makes some changes, as things stand now, I guess starting next month, Ohioans can start growing pot, and then sometime next summer or beyond, all the rules will be in place for edibles and and smoking it legally in Ohio. Is that right? Well, that's correct. You won't be able to legally purchase adult-use cannabis until next year in the dispensaries or the place where you're legally able to purchase them exist. Um, you'll be able to home grow before that, though. And the, you know, the law does have quite a few protections for employers um, in place of public accommodation with respect to you know, adults using cannabis on their premises. And basically, I guess, you know, it's just like alcohol. It, it, it'll be legal, but that doesn't mean you can do it on the job. That's correct. Uh, so employers don't have to accommodate or permit cannabis use on the job. Um, they don't have to allow you to bring it on their premises. And in fact, you know, employers don't have to accommodate your cannabis use off the job. Unlike some other states, Ohio does not have um, a lawful use statute that protects people from engaging in you know, lawful activities or using lawful products off duty. So for example, if a, an employee uses cannabis off the job, off-duty and comes to work and tests positive for marijuana on a drug test, the employer can terminate them or take other adverse action against them based on that drug test, even though the marijuana use occurred off the job and off hours. And this is uh, what makes it so interesting is unlike alcohol, this uh, doesn't leave your system in a matter of hours from what I understand. That's correct. Unlike alcohol, Marijuana, the active ingredient THC, is not um, waterside fat soluble, so it just stays in the body, you know, for quite some time. And so, a positive drug test just shows the presence of marijuana metabolites in your system. It does not show that you're impaired, unlike an alcohol test, uh, which is why it's very important for employers to have good reasonable suspicion testing for their managers employees so they could tell what impairment may or may not look like on the job. So does this happen in Ohio? Are there employers who are terminating employees because they've detected marijuana in their system and, and not just maybe preventing them from hiring someone, but someone who's been working in an office or wherever 
Uh, are people being terminated for this, or is it not so much enforced all that much, or what? I think it depends on the employer. Um, for example, if you're an employer that has a drug-free workplace program um, under the offices of the Bureau of Workers' Compensation, you have to test for marijuana, both pre-employment and post-employment, during employment, and take action based on a positive drug test. If you are covered by the U.S. Department of Transportation regulations, let's say you have a commercial driver's license, um, you have to test and have to take adverse action against a driver who tests positive. In most workplaces, it's up to the employer in Ohio. And so, yes, there are people being terminated for positive drug tests. Maybe this happens more in manufacturing operations or jobs where a person is a safety-sensitive position. You know, your crane operators, heavy machinery operators, people working punch presses and machines, maybe not so much if you have a front office worker or a receptionist. Ohio gives considerable discretion to employers on how they implement and enforce you know, a substance abuse drug testing policy in their workplaces. One piece that I saw that you had uh, had written was that a person may not sue an employer for refusing to hire or for discharging, disciplining, discriminating, retaliating, or otherwise taking adverse employment action against them related to their cannabis use. Is this ever a contentious issue? In terms of that provision, I mean, that provision is the same that's in Ohio's medical marijuana law, uh, which has been in effect since about 2016. I don't know of any cases where that has actually come up and been litigated. For example, does that conflict with the Ohio's Ohio Constitution's open courts provision um, that hasn't been tested yet? We uh, are hearing that the state legislature, there, there are lawmakers who are opposed to recreational marijuana who may either try to amend this or maybe even try to repeal it. Do you have any concerns that they may go too far or do something that might make this even more complicated than it has to be? From the, from the employer perspective, the protections in Issue 2 for employers are substantially similar to what's been in effect since 2016 in the medical marijuana law. So for employers, that's good. How, it, how it's going to operate societally, you know, where you can purchase marijuana, how much marijuana will be taxed, where those tax receipts go, those are all outside the, you know, the employer's perspective. But you're right, it's an initiated statute, unlike constitutional amendment. So General Assembly has the authority to amend and possibly repeal what the voters just enacted. The laws about marijuana are different uh, on the federal level than uh, than on Ohio's new state level. How does this Im- uh, impact federal workers in Ohio? Uh, well, federal workers are still governed by, as are every other individual in Ohio, governed by federal law, technically, right? So currently marijuana is still a controlled substance under uh, Schedule One, so it has no legitimate medical use under current federal law, um, so it's illegal. You know, in prosecutorial discretion, I don't, I don't know if they're going and terminating federal workers who test positive on a drug test absent some other considerations, safety-sensitive, contractual requirements, perhaps, DOT-covered positions. So it's, it's illegal under federal law across the country, 
being enforced, right? I mean, 24 states have legalized recreational adult use marijuana. We're being the 20, we're the 24. Talking with Mike Griffiton, he's a labor and employment attorney in the Vorey's Columbus office. So if, if somebody works where, I don't know, maybe there's random testing, and yet they do want to engage in recreational marijuana, you know, as I say, they go to a party, they have some gummies, and, uh, and it's in their system. What kind of advice do you have for somebody who wants to live that way? Well, uh, let the buyer beware. It's the same advice. You know, we draft sometimes in our policies for employers to provide to their employees, um, you know, the risks of, let's say, CBD products, right, that are not supposed to trigger a positive drug test, but because they are either impure, uh, because they built up in your system, um, because the manufacturers mislabel the amount of THC in the product, um, trips a positive drug test. And so if you're going to engage in adult use marijuana, you need to be aware of what your employer's policies are and the very likely potential if the employer prohibits marijuana use um, that you could be disciplined or terminated. Now, from a practical standpoint, you know, there are employers who are no longer testing for marijuana, at least for job applicants, um, because it's a tight hiring market for some employers. Um, they may not also test or may discount a test for marijuana on a random test. Absent other you know, reasonable suspicion that you've engaged in marijuana use on the job or somehow you're impaired. But I would say the employees just need to be aware that's a very real potential that you could be disciplined or terminated. I saw one report that said that they expect to see an uptick in, in uh, testing of healthcare workers and also law enforcement workers since they work around firearms and such. Do you, do you see that as a possibility? I mean, that's a distinct possibility. Um, we know from you know, Quest Diagnostics, one of the big drug test companies, um, that most of the positive drug tests are for marijuana. So it, it is very likely you're going to encounter applicants and employees who test positive for marijuana. You just need to determine are they impaired and how are you going to, to treat that positive drug test? Talking with Mike Griffiton. He's a labor and employment attorney in the Voorhees Columbus office. Anything else you'd like to add? Only that I don't think we've seen the last of issue two. I mean, as you mentioned, and as some of the news reports have, have indicated, um, it's likely that provisions of issue two are going to come before the General Assembly again. And so we don't know what the, the exact parameters of Recreational marijuana in Ohio is yet. Okay. Mike Griffiton, again, he's a labor and employment attorney in Vorey's Columbus office. Thanks so much for the information today. I appreciate it. Dave, you're very welcome. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. I'm Kate Burdett, and in the city of Columbus, there's a program known as the New American Leadership Academy. It's a leadership and professional development program focused on civic engagement for new American residents. Abdi Sofei is the New American Initiative Coordinator for the city of Columbus, and he's joining us today to tell us a little bit more about this program. Hi, Abdi. 
Hi, Kate. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Tell me a little bit more about what exactly the new American Leadership Academy is. So the New American uh, Leadership Academy is a, a leadership development program, a signature program of the New American program within the Department of Neighborhoods, a one-of-its-kind leadership development program within the city of Columbus. Uh, it's a unique eight-month-long experience focused on civic engagements, as you mentioned earlier, uh, for our New American residents and the Columbus community at large. Um, we have a quite a growing new American community with nearly 180,000 foreign-born individuals who speak over 100 different languages. So uh, Columbus has been a robust, diverse city uh, where many new Americans call home. Uh, We started this program, um, as you may have heard, the mayor says many times, Columbus being the America's opportunity city where everyone should have a voice and opportunity to engage their different different neighborhoods. And it seems like an amazing idea that probably should have been had a long time ago. Can you tell us about how long the Academy has been in existence and really what it was that prompted this move by the city of Columbus? Um, the, so the program started in 2018 uh, in order to create an inclusive, empowered community for all residents, including the new American uh, residents. The Leadership Academy was started in 2018, uh, in course, of course, to empower and encourage our new American neighborhoods efforts to be civically engaged within the city. And since 2018, it has evolved, and we added a number of different sessions to give more experience and design to equip um, the participants with the skills needed to empower their communities in different, you know, uh, neighborhoods in culturally appropriate manner, uh, so they can become a influential, active leaders within uh, their respective communities. We provide a comprehensive tools to foster inclusive approach uh, where everyone's input is not only value, but also purposefully sought. Um, so we have uh, a uniquely designed uh, training uh, that's pra- practical and uh, prof- that gives us a professional experience uh, of our new American community, especially focused on civic engagement so they can advocate the policies and make our communities uh, more stronger and more inclusive communities and residents. Abdi, can you go into a little more depth about the experiences that people have when they undertake this program in terms of what type of trainings and exposures that they have as part of the New American Leadership Academy? And that's a very good question, Kate. Um, Of course, every class is unique. Uh, but represent a kind of a wide range of, you know, folks with different background and education and uh, from business sector, nonprofit, you know, healthcare, education, small business, and even some full-time students. Uh, overwhelming majority of uh, participants, you know, uh, are already leaders in their respective communities and have different roles and responsibilities. Um, and and the sessions that we provide is, you know, uniquely designed to 
give them the opportunities, uh, you know, anything from conflict resolution and management, public speaking, um, you know, um, navigating city business services uh, by the city government, um, and so many different topics uh, that are focused on civic engagement. So they have, you know, a sense of inspiration, a sense of, you know, community service, uh, a sense of belongings, uh, building cross-cultural relationship among diverse emerging leaders. Uh, the sessions promote, you know, community safety or wellness and well-being, prevention of, you know, the type of causes and uh, that creates tensions and, and misinformations and it creates capacity building, cultural competence and equal opportunities and, you know, youth educational development. So those are the type of, you know, sessions that advance community collaborations and uh, civic participations. It sounds like a really well-rounded program in terms of introducing new American residents here in our community to some of these important topics that you touched on, which aren't necessarily something you can learn maybe in a book. Do you um, or your colleagues, have you looked at the past few years of progress with this program and are there any metrics with which you measure any outcomes or any success stories? Yes, indeed. Um you know, by the end of the program, um, as, as I mentioned, each course is unique. Uh, participants will have the skills necessary to navigate local government and in and, and, and turn uh, help not only themselves, but their, you know, through professional development, uh, empower their communities to, to do the same. Uh, many of our alumni serve our community in different roles. Uh, we're growing the American community and different capacities. Um, quite a few of them have joined different area commissions, civic associations in their respective neighborhoods. Uh, some are serving uh, their community, uh, the elected positions, boards and commissions in different levels, including the state and the city commissions and non-profit sector as well. Um, so um, we received a, uh, you know, quite a positive feedback uh, of the type of growth, uh, this uh, professional uh, development that that has been inspired through their participation of the program. Now, I suppose that the name should suggest, as it is the New American Leadership Academy, that, you know, someone who is particularly interested in this program would be someone that was not born in America, is new to our community. But are there any other criteria that need to be met so that someone can be involved in this? How How is someone eligible to be a part of this program? So the Academy is open to all qualified applicants, um, uh, 18 years or older with high school diploma or equivalent. And uh, we're all new Americans as far as, you know, the city of Columbus uh, being a welcoming city. Um, some participants are, you know, Columbus is born, uh, not necessarily immigrants. Um, so, you know, it, it inspires, uh, you know, participations. Uh, participants are uh, selected based on their demonstrated readiness to grow and enhance their knowledge of civic engagement, community stewardship, uh, leadership, uh, so they can discover 
new ways to contribute their communities. Um, we have had um, over 40 uh, different fellows representing, you know, 40 national heritage and cultural, uh, including an uh, American-born uh, Columbus sites who never left Columbus. Um, we have over 60 plus different languages participated. Um, uh, in this current quarter, 2023, we have 19 diverse fellows, 16 different national uh, heritage and cultures, 29 different languages um, graduating, in fact, this week. And, you know, each cohort reflects uh, quite diversity in, in, in our community. Uh, so the new American doesn't necessarily mean those folks who are, you know, overwhelming majority of them have that multicultural background, but it's it's open to everyone who is uh, willing to step up and serve their community in different capacities. So really all that's required is that desire to make a difference in their community. Yes, indeed. That's wonderful. Someone listening right now that may be interested in finding out more or perhaps even being considered to be a part of the New American Leadership Academy in Columbus, how would they do so? Well, by going to our website, um, columbus.gov slash N-A-L-A, that's columbus.gov slash NALA. We know uh, the New Americans in Columbus have exceptional skills and talents that contributes to our rich cultural diversity and help our neighborhoods thrive. Um, you know, as you know, uh, neighborhoods are, you know, uh, one of the mayor's strategic priorities and the new American residents have, have vested interests are vital to the success of our neighborhoods. So we need uh, to have more well-informed leaders, well-educated leaders in our city uh, as a community leaders should be the ones who knows the, uh, as they say, uh, who should know the way, and and you know um, shows the way and goes the way basically. Uh, so uh, the website is columbus.gov slash nala. Columbus.gov slash nala nala for the New American Leadership Academy. Thank you so much for your time today. Was there anything else that we didn't get to that you wanted to make sure was included in our conversation? Thank you so much, Kate. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, you know, we're a growing city, a very diverse city, and, you know, we want our community to be well-informed. Uh, civic engagement is one of those areas that, you know, folks can contribute. Uh, people came here to uh, find opportunities, uh, but also in the process, uh, create opportunities as our new American community contribute great deal to the success of our community. And I appreciate the opportunity of being on the show. Absolutely. Keep up the great work, Abdi. This is a wonderful program. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Doug Petcash from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Just a quick note. This interview with Governor Mike DeWine was conducted before Election Day, and they talk about state issues one and two. However, the information that the governor passes along is still relevant and beneficial to hear the governor's point of view on state issues one and two. As you've probably seen, the governor and first lady appear in a political ad opposing issue one, the constitutional amendment that would legalize abortion in the state. I sat down with him at the governor's residence in Bexley for a wide-ranging interview on several of the big issues affecting Ohioans. We started with his 
stance on issue one. You know, Fran, I've never done an ad on a statewide issue before. Uh, you know, I've stated my positions in the past, but we feel very, very strongly about this. I think whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, wherever you are in regard to abortion, this constitutional amendment just goes much, much too far. It really does two big things. Uh, first of all, it enshrines this in the Constitution, which means it cannot be changed except by another constitutional um, amendment. It's not just a law, it's in the Constitution. It will, will provide that abortion can occur at any point uh, during, during the pregnancy. Uh, we have a law that we've had on the books for a number of years, which outlaws what's called a partial birth abortion. Uh, this was developed by a doctor in Dayton. Uh, there were a number of those that were occurring. Uh, it's a very, very late-term abortion. Babies delivered partially and killed and then finished the delivery. These were actually occurring in Ohio. Um, so this amendment would negate that. It would, it would override that. It would also override uh, another uh, law that we've had for a number of years, which is parental consent is needed in regard to an abortion when you're dealing with a minor. Um, I think most Ohioans, uh, the vast majority of Ohioans, don't believe that abortion should occur at any time. And I think the vast majority of Ohioans want parents to be involved uh, if their daughter is making a very, very difficult and important decision in her life. The ballot measure seems to be a pushback against the abortion ban that went into effect. Do you think that in any way that if the abortion law that was passed was maybe more measured, not as extreme as the opponents to it say, that we might not even be in a situation where there's a vote? You know, the only thing that's on the ballot is this what I consider to be a very radical constitutional amendment. So voters are going to decide yes or no. They're going to put this in the Constitution. Uh, if we're able to defeat this, um, then the issue will be, where do we go from here? And I believe that there is a spot where we can get to in regard to abortion. Now that this is all returned to the states, mm -hmm. I think there's a place where Ohioans, at least the majority of Ohioans, can be, can be comfortable. Uh, the vast majority of Ohioans, for example, clearly believe that um, there should be an exception for rape and incest. So I think that if we can defeat this, and we can continue this discussion. It's important for us to do everything we can to find a sweet spot where Ohioans are comfortable. I just don't think the majority of Ohioans are comfortable with abortion at any point during a pregnancy. The other big issue, issue two on the ballot uh, regarding legalizing recreational marijuana use. Just where do you stand on that, Governor? First of all, I think it's important when we talk about marijuana to recognize that we have medical marijuana now in the state of Ohio. And we, we can continue to expand that as medical science tells us that marijuana or a derivative of marijuana can be helpful to someone. Look, we want people to have the help that they need from a medical point of view. So we already have that in place in the state of Ohio. What this amendment would do is allow recreational use of marijuana. We've seen this in about half of the state, so we now have a real experience level. We know what will happen. And the things that will happen that have happened in other states, I don't think are good. Number one, There'll be more people uh, killed on the highways. We know that. That's occurred in every single state that has, has broadened the use of marijuana to include recreational. More, more accidents, 
more people killed, more people under the influence of, of marijuana. That's number one. Number two, there'll be more children, many times little toddlers, little kids, who end up in the emergency room because they, they, they ate a gummy bear or they ate a brownie uh, that had marijuana in it. Uh, that will become perfectly legal. And we know when you talk to emergency room professionals in other states, that will happen. Those numbers will go up. Uh, the third thing I would say, it changes the culture. Um, the law is a, is a teacher. It, 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 it sets the norms for society. So let's take a 15-year-old who's in the car with mom or dad. They're going to soccer practice. And, and the 15-year-old is seeing signs for marijuana. Uh, in, in Denver, for example, they have the, the green men. And every time you see a green man, you know that's where you can go buy marijuana. What's that 15-year-old think? Well, what she thinks or he thinks is, well, I know I can't do it until I'm 21, but it must be okay uh, because the law says that it is, it is okay. What we now know is a lot more than we knew 20 years ago, even 10 years ago young people who use marijuana and when this has passed in other states, the underage use of marijuana also went up dramatically. And so what we know is the use of marijuana by a young person uh, when the brain is still developing uh, is many times can cause a a serious loss of IQ uh, and it's it's a permanent loss. So these are things we didn't know many years ago. The, the final thing is this marijuana is a lot more potent than the marijuana of the 60s or 50s uh, or the 70s. And, you know, it's just a lot more, a lot more potent. We know that there's still a lot of illegal marijuana use going on. Does the, the opportunity to regulate and then also the tax revenue at all come into you know, the thoughts of, you know, maybe it's not yeah. such a bad thing to, to legalize? Know, I think, look, look uh, the, the tax revenue that we're going to get is going to be offset by additional crashes, additional work by the highway patrol and local police. It's going to be offset uh, by all the social bad things that will that will occur because of it. It's not worth the price. It's just not it, it's not worth worth doing. Over the last four years, the state has earmarked $26 million in grants to improve security at religious institutions, some schools, and nonprofits in Ohio. The governor's office says a significant amount has gone to Jewish organizations. In light of the Israel-Hamas war, I asked Governor DeWine if there's greater interest in that program and about his concerns over potential violence against Jews, Palestinians, and other Muslims here. Well, I want to thank the legislature uh, at my request. They have provided money for the last several years to uh, deal with the hate that we see in society and the, the small groups. Uh, we have some in Ohio. We have white supremacists. We have others. Uh, and many times uh, our, our Jewish friends are those who are targeted. Uh, but look, we have to speak out against hate no matter where we, we find it. Uh, the story about the little child, the seven-year-old who was, who was killed uh, because he was a Muslim, uh, you know, those are just tragic, tragic things, and we have to speak out against this. But we provided money uh, for places of worship to harden the security, to have people there. Um, it's, it's horrible that we have to do this today, that that threat is there, but it's a very real threat. Um, you know, if you look at 
uh, when you talk to the, the the people of national security who are the specialists, one of the things that they, they say is, you know, with all this conversation going on, uh, very, very concerned about more hate crime, very, very concerned about even a lone person who gets motivated by what they what they see and what they hear, uh, who might go after a, a Jewish synagogue. So, yes, we're very concerned about it. And this money is available. And, yes, we have seen more interest in, in the availability of this money. And how worried are you? You touched on it about the potential for violence against Jews or against Palestinians or other Muslims yeah, this, in, look, in Ohio. Yeah, look, I, we worry about it all the time. Um, and, you know, we try to do what we can do with, with money and other other help. Uh, I had a, a, a conference call uh, several days ago with uh, Jewish leaders throughout the state of Ohio just to listen to what their concerns are. But I also had my public safety people on there to talk with them about what is available as far as money, but also who they can contact if, if they are, in fact, seeing things. Seeing something. You had mentioned a couple months ago that you were putting together a crime package. What is in that that would address specifically, you know, gun violence? And uh, we're seeing a lot of it among, you know, young teenagers now, too. Look, we're seeing more gun violence, uh, particularly in our cities, but not just our big cities. We're seeing our mid-sized cities as well. Uh, the other thing, as I talk to police officers and chiefs of police and sheriffs, that they tell me is we're seeing violence, particularly gun violence, um, among a younger and younger group of people. 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds. One of the things that we have done uh, is we put a group together uh, to go in and help local law enforcement. You know, we are a local law enforcement state. We have over 900 police departments in the state of Ohio. But what we can do at the state level is bring in the highway patrol to work with the local police. We can bring and surge in our parole officers. Uh, Once someone commits a violent offense in Ohio, they're out on parole. They're not supposed to have a gun. And that's a separate offense. So we can go check uh, and our parole officers can do that. The other thing we bring in is our liquor control people uh, who go to bars and sit outside bars. And they can spot people when they're walking into that bar who've, who've got a gun and people who are not supposed to have guns, um, you know, we've been able to arrest a number of them. So we work, first of all, with the local police. We work with the local mayor. If they want us to come in, we will come in and we will surge that those resources in. We can also bring a helicopter in. Uh, we've done that. And again, that helps the local police. Many times they don't have a helicopter and the coordination between that helicopter and that officer up there and the people who are on the ground uh, can make a difference in regard to, to catch criminals. Is there anything in your opinion that can be done as a prevention measure, you know, in terms of getting to these kids at a younger age uh, to bolster them rather than having them turn to the streets or whatever it might be? Look, there's there's no easy approach to how we deal with this cultural problem that we are we are seeing. But um, you're right. It's it's not just about after someone's committed an offense, catching them and, and, and dealing with them. Prevention is obviously the most important thing. Uh, I've been a big advocate, and we put some very serious money in uh, boys' clubs, girls' clubs. Uh, you know, how we, we reach out to young people, how we try to get them a mentor. They may not have a mentor in their life. They may not have an adult in their life who, uh, you know, they can role model. These are all very, very important things. So, you know, God bless the boys 
boys clubs and the girls clubs, uh, the other organizations that are out there trying to reach these these young people. And frankly, we just have to do more of it. I mean, we just have to focus focus on that. You know, we're seeing um, some efforts uh, in the legislature to combat fentanyl and human trafficking, kind of a hand-in-hand approach. How big of an issue do you feel that like, the human trafficking in particular is, and we're seeing fentanyl across the country? Well, first of all, human trafficking is a problem in Ohio. It's a problem in every state. Uh, we have a number of interstates that crisscross Ohio. That's a good thing, but it also brings more human trafficking. So, you know, great effort. The Attorney General, David Yost, is making an effort in that area. We have local law enforcement. We're making efforts. Uh, but I guess my message to the public is keep your eyes open. Uh, you know, if you see something that doesn't look right to you, uh, you're sitting, you're, you're in, a, in a motel uh, and someone's checking in and it looks like this guy is a lot older uh, than the young lady. You know, if you're the clerk there, maybe ask some questions. Everybody's eyes matter. Everybody's eyes matter. Fentanyl, look, fentanyl is just a huge, huge problem. Uh, We all know someone uh, who has had a loved one who has died because of fentanyl. Uh, Number one, China continues to ship in chemicals into Mexico that are used to produce fentanyl. The Mexican drug cartels have figured out this is the cheapest way that they can they can sell their product. They put fentanyl in it. So our border problem, people say, what does our border problem have to do with Ohio? Well, I'll tell you one thing it has to do with that fentanyl is coming right across our, our, our southern border. Now, we're doing, uh, we're doing, so we're doing, we need to do a lot in regard to law enforcement. Frankly, we need some help, a lot more help from the federal government on, on the southern border. I have sent our, the Ohio National Guard uh, down to the southern border on several different occasions. We've sent the, at the request of states, we've sent the highway patrol down. We're going to continue to help down there as much as we can, but we need a real effort from the, frankly, from the, from the federal government. The other thing that we can do, <clears throat> when you go into a rest area today, uh, you're going to find naloxone. Uh, we have made this available. Uh, I know some people say, well, you're making that available. Doesn't that encourage more people to take? No, it, it, it really doesn't. Uh, we're trying to save lives. We're trying to keep people alive long enough so they can kick the habit and become you know, productive citizens again. And they can't do that if they're dead. We're seeing such growth here in Ohio with business-wise, you know, with Intel, Google, Facebook, um, and whatnot. Um, and your office has been, you know, working to uh, beef up the workforce for those future jobs. Uh, is Ohio going to be able to meet the demand for that worker of the future? I mean, near future. When we're talking to companies and urging them to come to Ohio, the final hurdle we have to go over and the question that has to be answered correctly for them is will I find the employees here that I need? Sherwin-Williams, when we were fighting to keep them in Cleveland, which we were able to do, the final question was how many PhDs in chemistry can you produce every single year? So there's nothing more important than our educational system. Uh, you know, every company gets needs different people at different levels, at different s- sets of skills. We've really beefed up our career tech. We got more and more kids in career tech today, um, and there's jobs out there for each and every one of them. On the flip side, are you concerned about you know the influx of of people? Um, 
increasing uh, housing costs, transportation demand, and Ohio meeting those demands for as the growth continues. You know, I, I think that when you create more jobs, when you have companies come in, we just had a company come in uh, that's, that's going to come into Dayton. They're going to make flying taxis. They came out of California, and we're just happy to get them. Uh, Intel, we can talk about the, the Honda battery plant in Fayette County. We could go on and on. Yeah, I mean, when you have growth, there are challenges that you face. Uh, I've told uh, Jack Marshbanks, who heads up ODOT, Jack, we got to stay ahead of this growth. We can't be in a situation where people can't get to work and where the people who are coming to work get in the way of other people. So, yes, we're going to have to build out more in, in regard to our highways. Uh, we have challenges in regard to housing. Uh, we have challenges in many, many areas. So, yes, there's always another side to what we want. But the alternative is not to grow. Uh, and when you're not growing, you're going backwards. So we have to continue to grow. My goal for Ohio is to continue to grow. And we will keep up with the education that we need. We will keep up with the highways we need and the utilities that they need. That all kind of goes with it. Thank you for joining me this week for Face the State. I'm Doug Petcash. Have a great Sunday. That's again Doug Petcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dan Clare, who is the Chief Communications and Outreach Officer for Disabled American Veterans. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having us and thinking about, about veterans this week. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what Disabled American Veterans is. You know, DEV provides a lifetime of support for veterans of all generations. Um, we're helping veterans get their benefits, the benefits they earned in service. We're helping them access uh, transportation so that they can get to their medical appointments. Um, we're connecting them with jobs and entrepreneurship training, and we're a voice for them in, in Congress. So yesterday was Veterans Day. Can you talk a little bit about Veterans Day? Well, you know, DAV was founded by World War One veterans. Our founder actually was was injured. He's a Ohio native. He was injured right before the armistice. Um, so DAV uh, has a long history, even advocating for the establishment of Veterans Day. But for all veterans, it's a day we just honor people who served and 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 honor their family members. And, and especially this year, we want to thank the caregivers of veterans um, who do such an important service themselves. So as you mentioned, there's uh, DAV caregivers. Support. Tell us about that. You know, it's a new program. We know that um, veteran caregivers have a, have a very challenging job, and it's a labor of love for them. And through DEV caregiver support, we're able to provide concierge resources, help them with a plan so that they can keep veterans in their homes longer. That saves taxpayers money. Um, and it gives them some respite and recognizes that, that they, they have their own stress and, and they have depression and negative health outcomes sometimes that come with being a caregiver. So this improves relationships between caregivers and veterans, um, and it's just the right thing to do for people who share in the burden of our national defense. Between all the, the wars that we've had over the years uh, since Vietnam with uh, all the, the Middle Eastern wars, 
what are the ranks of the disabled uh, veterans in terms of numbers? Is that as high as it's ever been, or, or where does that stand? It's very high. Four million veterans right now have a service-connected disability that, that we know of. There's pro- it's probably higher than that, but when you consider that it's an all-volunteer force now for the last 50 years, we still have Vietnam veterans. Um, what we have is a smaller group of people um, who are shouldering the burden for our national defense for for. In some cases, you know, you look at 20 years of repeated deployments. There's a lot of challenges that these folks have, um, exposures, um, being around uh, traumatic, having traumatic brain injuries from, from combat. Um, so the, the, the burdens are high right now for a fairly small group of people. Less than 1% of the population at any given time is serving in the military. So it's, it's a small group, uh, but the needs are great. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a bittersweet, I guess, in a way, because uh, with the advancements, we have a much higher survivability rate, but also more veterans that are suffering as a result. Yeah, absolutely. I saw that in Iraq myself when I was in the military, um, where, you know, if you were able to make it to the hospital in, in they called it the golden hour, um, your chances of living were higher than 90 percent. But your quality of life uh, you know, for surviving with, with all this great technology we have and, and the, the, the great ballistics uh, glasses and all this stuff that protects people, we're still finding people with, you know, you're, you're still going to absorb a blast. You're going to have a traumatic brain injury. The, the challenges are, you know, they're truly great, um, but, it, but it's a group of people who went out there and did something special for our country. And so on Veterans Day, it, it just makes it all that more important that we thank them and, and recognize their service. And one of the ways to make sure that Americans don't lose touch with these heroes is to be volunteers. And I guess there's a lot of opportunities for that. A ton of opportunities for that. Um, And and one of the big things where we really need some help right now is we need drivers um, to help. Our our transportation network is a um, volunteer-operated program. Um, Overall, in in Ohio alone, that, that program has provided 680,000 hours worth of, of transportation to and from medical point appointments. It's helped more than 300,000 veterans. But we need help. The pandemic hurt us, of, of course, with with some volunteers dropping off. Um, and, and that's just a great area where, where you can help. The people who volunteer through that program say often they get more out of it than the veterans, which is incredible because without that service, some of these veterans wouldn't get the, the life-saving health care that they earned. Talking with Dan Clare, Chief Communications and Outreach Officer for Disabled American Veterans. Are there still a significant number of veterans who just aren't taking advantage of some of the services available to them? Absolutely. I mean, and, and we see that now. We have the PACT Act this year. So there's a, a, lot, of, a, a lot of veterans who, who still haven't, haven't registered for benefits for presumptive health issues um, that they might have faced if they were exposed to toxins um, while they were deployed. Um, and, and DEV wants to help all these folks. It doesn't have to be hard. You don't have to go it alone. DEV has benefits advocates here in Ohio who are going to help you through that process and help you get justice for, for your service. For a pretty extended period of time now, we've had unemployment down in the 3% range. How, how is uh, the employment situation among veterans when they, when they return? You know, it, right now, uh, veteran unemployment is, is fairly low, uh, extremely low, in fact. Um, it, it's lower than it is for, for other folks. Um, but, but we are worried a little bit about the quality of, of careers that veterans are in. Are, are we fully utilizing the talent and skills that they bring to the workforce? So DEV, uh, we, we 
partner with another uh, group here in Ohio, and, and we're, we're helping veterans uh, connect with jobs. We did 98 career fairs this year, or we will have done 98 by the end of the year. Um, so it, I, I think it's important for people to know these veterans can bring a lot to your workforce. It's still important to hire them, um, and, and they're, they're, they're great people to bring on. They, they bring a lot to the team, um, and it's a way that, that you can kind of help out those who served. Did the shift to work from home uh, during the pandemic, with a lot of that still going on, has that been helpful to disabled vets who maybe can't get out into the workplace? You know, I think in some ways it, it probably makes some employment opportunities more accessible for, for veterans who are disabled. Um, but, you know, it's it's like it is with everyone else, especially if you add in some of the challenges that veterans have. I, I think veterans are work better in team environments. We, we tend to excel when we're, when we're working with a united purpose. And so I, I, I think it's better for veterans to, to get back to work, um, and, and we're seeing that happen. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's probably something we need to just keep, keep on the accelerator on because, you know, things, things can change quickly there. And because of the responsibilities and, and the discipline that they have uh, put forth in their life and their career, that makes them very employable, right? I would say absolutely. If you think about how difficult it is, it used to be, you know, you'd say, well, the, the military was an option of last resort. Now it's it's so hard to get into the military. Um, you have to meet great moral standards. You have to meet, uh, you know, you have, you have to sh- prove yourself through your ASVAB tests. You have to prove yourself through through training. Um, and then you're part of a, a, a team. You've proven that you're trainable. Um, you're a quality asset. And, and the people who are hiring veterans, and we work with tons of companies who do, um, they're hooked. They're, they're in all the way because they just know it's good for their bottom line as well. Talking with Dan Clare from Disabled American Veterans, anything else you'd like to add? No, I mean, I, mean I, I want people to get involved and volunteer. We want caregivers to access this program, DAVcaregiversupport.org. Um, any other program for DAV, you can visit us at DAV.org. And we want to thank people in Ohio who have contributed to our cause. Um, we've seen uh, throughout the state executives who are involved in our entrepreneurship training program who are providing great mentorship for veterans. So we just want to thank everyone out there, and, and we hope everyone has a great Veterans Day. Dan Clare with Disabled American Veterans. Thanks for your time today and the information, Dan. Thank you so much for having us. Need to visit the Ohio BMV? Go online first. It could save you a trip. It's now easier and more convenient than ever to get what you need from the BMV online. Need to renew your driver's license? Renew online. And if you need to renew your vehicle registration, visit one of our new BMV Express kiosks or go online. If you do need to visit a BMV agency, use the Get In Line online tool, also found on the website, to save your spot and minimize your time waiting. For more services available online, check out bmv.ohio.gov. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dick Gephardt, former congressman from Missouri. He was also the House Majority Leader. He's now co-chair of the Coalition for Responsible Social Media. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Coalition for Responsible Social Media is. Well, one of our main goals is to try to get the platform 
platforms, the social media platforms, to change their product, to change the way they've designed their product so that it doesn't harm kids. We have two mothers on our council whose kids kill themselves because of being bullied and disparaged on social media. And what we know is that the social media platforms routinely put profits over the health of children and kids. And we are working every day to try to get Congress in a bipartisan way to pass something called the Kids Online Safety Act, uh, which would make the platforms finally design their algorithms, their AI, so that it doesn't boost information to kids that will harm them. You know, when you and I were kids, it was traumatic not to be picked or to be picked last for the kickball team. These days, the kind of pressure that kids are under that gets under the spotlight through social media is almost inconceivable. It's tragic. And uh, it's not just that there are a few kids that are suffering from this. Uh, We had a meeting of our council a few weeks ago, and I talked to some of these mothers. And uh, the one mother told me that her son got involved in something called the choke challenge, which I'd never heard of. And he even showed it to his mother, and she said, well, don't get involved in that. And he said, oh, I never would. I just thought it was funny. A few days later, they found him in the garage hanging from a belt, his belt, dead. So these platforms are boosting and amplifying information to suck these kids in, to keep their attention so their ads make more money, and, and it's killing kids and harming kids. College presidents tell us that half the class last fall, not this fall, but last fall, came to class with mental problems. And they had no capacity to deal with the depression, the anxiety, the other things that are caused in large part, not totally, but in large part by social media operations. You know, it's so interesting because kids will do things online, well, even adults will, uh, to a large extent for that matter, to gain likes on Facebook or, you know, some of these other platforms. And the odd thing is that a lack of likes might make someone feel inferior and and have self-esteem problems, but a surplus of them can work the other way, too, and maybe create, you know, more of a less empathetic, narcissistic sort of attitude. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of ways it can be harmful. You're exactly right. It's a uh, psychological tool, the likes of which we've never seen in human history. Information, I always say, is everything. And, and kids are in a very impressionable part of their life. Human beings are social animals. They want to be liked and respected by their peers. But this puts it on steroids and is creating all kinds of harm for our future, which is our children. So we are working overtime. And the good news is that we're seeing bipartisan support in Congress for things like the Kids Online Safety Act. And that really is heartening to me that uh, there are a few issues today where you can get bipartisanship, but this is one of them. So we are 
working very hard, and we would love it if people would get on PAPSCOSA.org, which they could get on, to see how they could help influence their members of Congress to pass this legislation. What is the biggest thing that you want to see social media platforms do? Well, the, the real meaningful part of COSA is that it would help end the manipulation of information which the platforms are doing today. And they're manipulating it to harm kids, and they know it. Francis Hogan, who's a member of our council, was a whistleblower on Facebook and the other companies that they run. And she testified in Congress that the platforms know that they're creating harm. And people like Francis told the top people at Facebook that they were creating harm for kids. And they just can't not do it because the profit is so enormous. The money incentive is so enormous that they have to keep going. So COSA requires the platforms to have a duty of care to change the design of their AI that's pushing out so much bad stuff to require the kids and or their parents to approve of the algorithmic design that they're going to be met with. And it requires them to design products that don't harm kids. So we've got to pass this bill. It'll be the first step to put some guardrails around social media. We've got lots of other concerns regarding our democracy and national security, but the first stop is to protect our kids. Talking with uh, former Congressman Dick Gephardt of Missouri. He's the co-chair of the Coalition for Responsible Social Media. Ohio has passed the Social Media Parental Notification Act, which would require kids under 16 to have parental permission to be on social media. Is that something that, you know, and it sounds like after it was passed, that it's kind of a work in progress in terms of how that would even work uh, effectively. What do you think about things like that? Well, we're for anything that would help. Uh, our, we've studied all the legislation and we've talked to a lot of people that came from the platforms that tried to get them to do better. And we think COSA is the, the best approach and the best first approach to get this done. But there are other things that are out there, uh, you know, keeping kids from having phones or interacting with phones until they're a certain age. All of that may have worth in application, uh, but we think COSA is the very best approach that we can recommend to Congress to get done, and so that's why we're working so hard for that. Uh, Congressman, if anybody wants more information about this, where do they find it online? Well, they can go to our website, uh, Council for Responsible Social Media, or they can go to passcosa.org. That will give them specific information on how they can help get the Kids Online Safety Act to be part of the law of the United States. Okay, that's PASSCOSA, P-A-S-S-K-O-S-A dot org. Dick Gephardt again joining us. Anything else you'd like to add? No, it's great to talk to you. I, I appreciate the time with you. Thanks, Congressman. Good luck. Thanks so much. 
This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.